this evening we're making, uh, we're moving into chapter 6, and I want to try to make a logical connection or bridge between what we saw last week and what we are going to be looking at this evening. Last week, the, the heading of the chapter was God is Spirit. This week, the heading or the title of the chapter is God is Personal. Now, maybe you haven't noticed or, or you didn't draw this conclusion. I think there's a reason why we ought to consider these two uh, traits of God back to back. And, and it is because very often when we think of God as spirit, the image that it gives us or the, the, the idea that we then conceive of God is something contrary to the fact that God is personal. So it's, it's sort of like seeing two sides of a coin. God is spirit, and yet we have to meet that with God is personal. Now, when you hear that, you might say, well, why would those be two sides of a coin? Why would there be any, any discrepancy between them at all? Well, the reason is this. There are, the word spirit, or the idea of spirit, even though we defined it last week or, or tried to articulate what that means, the, the concept of spirit carries with it connotations in our minds that are usually not helpful. Uh, I looked up, I just searched a, a definition of the term spirit in a modern dictionary and um, there, there, were, there was a, a plethora of definitions of the way that this word is used in our modern vernacular, and these are not wrong. These are legitimate ways that we use this term. Spirit could be defined as a person's prominent mental or moral characteristics. Spirit could be defined as an emotional or uh, emotion or mood. For example, I hope the team will build on this spirit of confidence, an emotion or mood, or, or a particular individual's mood. We might use the term spirit. For example, someone, you might say, well, their spirits were low, or they were in high spirits. Or spirit could be defined as a quality of courage, energy, and determination. For example, the, the sentence that was given, his visitors admired his spirit and good temper. These are the ways that we use the, the term spirit. Now over against that, last Lord's Day we saw that to say that God is spirit, and here I'm going to read again Bovink's definition, is to say that God is a substance distinct from the universe, immaterial, invisible to human eyes, and without composition or extension. Now when you read that, you say that is nowhere near the way that we often use the term spirit in our day, even though we do have definitions that would begin to move in that direction. When we say that God is spirit, we're making a statement about the being or the nature of God Himself. Now continuing in that same vein, dealing with the nature of God as well as what God is not, anytime we begin to assert God is this, by implication we're also saying God is not something else. When we say that God is not one thing, we're by implication saying that He is something else. But now I want to compare all of that with this next chapter, which is dealing with God as personal. God is spirit and personal. And there are ideas behind both of these words that might lead us to believe He must be one or the other. In reality, He is both spirit and personal. So if you, if you have the, the book, I'm going to read some of the notes that are given here. The opening paragraph begins by addressing what God is not. And this will come back later. One of the most important truths of Scripture is that God is not an impersonal force thoughtlessly moving the universe. Now, if we took out the word force, this just sort of came to me because I was, as I was reading this, I was thinking, well, there, there's not a text in Scripture that says God is not an impersonal force. But there are those passages that will describe the gods of the, of the heathen 
They have eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, uh, mouths but do not speak, etc. In other words, they are something of a form, a substance, of, in, in, especially in, in their uh, iconic form, the, the image that they would use. It bears some substantial form and yet it is impersonal. That thing is impersonal, utterly impersonal, whereas God is spirit. There is no iconic form whatsoever and He is personal. So, But the point here being God is not an impersonal force, nor is He a capricious power, coldly manipulating His creation for some selfish end. Now these are things, an impersonal force, a capricious power, these are things that some might conclude from the notion that God is spirit. Do we not often find that an individual with a strong spirit about them, using those definitions I used before, has the ability very often to persuade us, to, to move us in a certain direction? This is the, the whole point behind a, a zealous infomercial character. The, the way he talks and the way he acts, you, 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 he sells it to you. His, his spirit, his demeanor, his emotion, his character has the ability to persuade people. And so when we say, well, God is spirit, some people might take that to mean, well, He's just a force that, that pushes or persuades in some way, moves the universe. That's not true. That's not what we're saying. On the contrary, and I'm going to continue reading, the Scriptures teach us that God is personal. That is, He possesses a distinguishable personality... He is aware of His own existence, has both an intellect and a will, and is capable of entering into personal relationship with man. So God is personal, and then that is defined as He possesses a distinguishable personality, and then that is further explained. He is aware of His existence, has an intellect and a will, is capable of entering into personal relationship with man. All of that we're going to see in a minute. That's what the chapter opens up, those, those things. But I, I want to add a little bit of clarity to the concept of personhood and personality. Again, because in our day, if we use the term personality, we usually don't mean what is meant by saying God has personality. And, and I, I think it's important that we understand these definitions. When we in, I've said this many times. When we enter into theological discourse, we're entering into a conversation that has been going on for a long time, and the terms and the words have, have already been defined for us. Now, those same words are used outside that universe of discourse, and they mean different things. So we have to understand what we're talking about. Typically, when we use the term personality... We're referring to an individual's behavioral and emotional character traits, the things that distinguish them in some way. For example, we might say that someone has a bubbly personality or someone has a, a quiet or pensive, thoughtful personality. We might say somebody has a fun-loving or goofy personality and then somebody else has a very grave and sober personality. And we're describing the character traits that we've sort of picked up from them and then we use, that's what we mean by personality. That's not what we mean when we say that God possesses a distinguishable personality. Although there is some connection in the, the fundamental ideas and I think we can draw a connection here. This might at least help you make the connection between what we typically think and what is being said here. Usually when we think of someone's personality, we have in mind those traits which set them apart as their own distinct self. I'm going to use that term, self. Historically, the term personality was defined as the state of being a person. What is personality? The state of being a person. If you have a personality, you are a person. Personality is that which constitutes an individual as a distinct person. What is a person? You're probably thinking of the 
What does a woman deal with? Now we're asking, what is a person? Right? What is a person? When we hear the word person, maybe this is just me, we typically almost uh, draw an immediate parallel between person and human being. A person is just another one of those of the human race. But that's not what the word person means either. The word person comes from the Greek word prosopon, often translated in Scripture as face. Like when you see references to the face of God, the prosopon. The term was used outside of Scripture with reference to a mask worn by an actor in a play. What does a mask do? If you're in a play, you put a mask on, what does that do? Well, that distinguishes you as playing this role over against these other actors, these other uh, parts. Wearing the mask would give them identity A, and that would distinguish them from identity B. If you've got this mask on, well, you're this person, you're clearly not this one over here. That's, that's the idea of face, prosopana, the, 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 the individual character. So a, a person refers to an individual character who possesses qualities which set them apart as themselves and not others. I am a person, not because I'm a human being, but because I, this is going to sound weird, because I am my own self and I'm not you. You are persons because you are your own self and not me. That's, we, we are individual instances of humanity, human being. We are persons. You are your own self. I am my own self. Now coming back to God, when we say that God is personal, we're saying that He possesses a distinguishable personality, that being qualities which distinguish Him as a specific, identifiable, individual character. Or or we could say God is His own self. Maybe it's easier to think of it a different way. Going back to what we said at the beginning, we have stated God is not an impersonal force. What do we mean when we say that? When we say that God is not impersonal, what, what are we saying? What do, how, how are we using that word impersonal? Well, we usually mean by impersonal, lifeless, unable to relate, communicate, without internal reasoning abilities, no thought life of their own. That would be an impersonal thing. In other words, to be impersonal is to be reduced almost to the inertness that we talked about last week of matter. No consciousness, no understanding, impersonal. It's it's just a thing, but it's not a self. Well, then to be personal, to be a person or to have personality is the opposite of all of that. God does have His own life. God is a living, conscious, understanding, reasoning, thinking being. And that's what we see opened up in this chapter. So, there are basically three main ideas that are put forth here. Given to prove this assertion, God is a person, God is personal, or God has personality. God is aware of His own existence. God possesses an intellect. And God possesses a will. I'll say this from the outset and I'll repeat it several times. There there is so much anthropomorphic language that we have to use to say these things that it's hard to qualify or clarify every statement that that is going to be made. I'll I'll, I'll keep doing this throughout, but I'm going to say things that if you wanted to come up later and say, you know, technically this is, I would say you are absolutely right. I just don't know of another way to say it. Um, So anyway, I'll, I'll keep repeating this. So number one, God is aware of His own existence. And I'm going to read quite a bit from the the chapter here. It may seem unnecessary to say that God is aware of His own existence, but this is one of the most fundamental characteristics of one who has a personality. It it might help if if you just always think of the word personhood over against personality. That might help us distinguish uh, from the way we typically use the word. This is one of the most fundamental characteristics of one who has personhood, a personality. 
There are many religions outside Christianity whose concept of God is that of either an impersonal force, Buddhism or Taoism, or an essence that dwells within all things. That would be pantheism. In contrast, the God of the Scriptures is a personal being who is aware of His own existence as distinct from all other beings and things. Now, He even said it might, might seem like it needs to go without saying, and we, we wonder, why do we have to say this? But again, think about why this distinction between the God of the Scriptures and the God of, of Buddhism, Taoism, or, or pantheism, why this has to be clarified. Because we do have statements in Scripture like Acts 17.25, He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Acts 17.28, In Him we live and move and have our being. And so we would conclude everything that has life, all that is living has that life from God, everything living has its life from God, and yet He is not to be thought of as simply an essence that dwells within all things. He is a self-existent personal being distinct from everything to which He gives life. So, you, so we could re- people might read statements and begin to think, well, if He's... If he's he gives life to everything and everything has life. He becomes the, the life source. He's, he's in everything. And they begin to move into that sort of pantheistic thinking of God being in the creature itself. Back to personality. The point here is that God is aware of His own existence. God has His very own infinite mind. God has a being separate from everything else. God has existence from Himself. And He's aware of all that. He knows that. In whatever way we might want to articulate the thought, life, and perception of God, we we simply say God is aware of His own existence. And the first passage that's given here is Exodus 3, 14. So we can turn there and look at it together. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And He said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now I know that it's, it's hard in a, a gathering like this when your, your, your mind is sort of geared towards uh, ob- observing, listening, and, and receiving information. It's hard to kind of get in, into a, a meditational, deep thinking, uh, in-your-own-mind type of, of uh, state. But think about what is happening here. God speaks about Himself. He's talking And he says of of himself, I am who I am. Now, again, I know that if if you can't get there, it's like we hear what you're saying. I don't understand. Get alone at some point and just stop and think about the fact that God is talking about himself to Moses. He is declaring what he himself knows of himself in a way that is, is formatted for Moses to receive it, for us to receive it, and to try to make some, something of it, to, to understand it. I'm, I'm convinced every attribute that we could name of God, we can deduce from this phrase, I am who I am, every single one of them. But God says that. He declares what He knows of Himself. Now, we do this often. We will talk about ourselves. We can, we can have false 
ideas of ourselves. We often think too highly of ourselves or maybe even think too lowly of ourselves or we might, be, we might tend to embellish or withhold something. But God is not that way. When God says, I am who I am, He's declared it fully. All that we would ever need to know of God in that statement. And He knows it perfectly. He's not embellishing. He's not... It, it just is. He is telling us who He is. This, I'm reading the note here, this declaration is a powerful affirmation that God recognizes His own existence. He knows that He is and that He is distinct from all created persons and things. So He is aware of His existence. Moving on, the Scriptures teach us not only that God is aware of His own existence, but also that He is aware of His individuality or that He is aware of His distinctness from all created persons and things. Now we can turn to Isaiah 45. It really is astonishing if you just stop and think of these statements and you, I think we, this is one of those doctrines that uh, familiarity with them breeds, maybe not contempt, but just an ignoring of them or a moving past them very quickly. This is God Himself speaking to us through the written Word. Every, every statement, you could take every, every singular statement that God says and just stop and think, God, this is God speaking. God has said this. Isaiah 45, 21. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. He's declaring. He is the only one in His class. He, he, he is aware that He is, and He is aware that there is no other like Him. He is unlike any other. Isaiah 40, verse 25 is also referenced. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Again, the Holy One. Think about that. In, in Scripture, we've said this and many men have pointed this out. The Bible never takes, takes any time to defend the existence of God. Every statement is, is just matter of fact. It is. God created. God is. God said. The Holy One. The Lord. I am. Period. End of discussion. The Bible doesn't, doesn't even give any credence to the concept that we might even want to or need to defend the existence of God or that He is. It, it just simply is. It's, it's wonderful. To whom then will you liken me that I would be His equal? There is none that is His equal. There is none like God. Each one of these declarations proves that God is both distinct and independent from all other individuals and things. That's, a, that's a, a tenet of personhood. A person is distinct and individual. I'm a person because I'm not you. I am me, that I have personhood. How do these texts prove this? Well, in each one of these texts, God is the one speaking. He speaks of Himself and what He knows of Himself, and He clearly distinguishes between Himself and all other things. Therefore, God is declaring His personhood. Again, this reveals to us, to speak in a human way, that God has a consciousness of Himself. God knows that He is. God knows most fully and perfectly that He is, what He is, and what He is not. And having a conscious awareness of one's own being is a trait of personhood. Point number two, God possesses an intellect. 
God possesses an intellect. The intellect is considered to be one of the primary characteristics of personhood. A word, or the word, comes from the Latin word. I'm, I don't know if in Latin I'm supposed to use a soft G or a hard G, but I'm going to say intelligere. And refers to the ability to reason, perceive, and understand. According to the Scriptures, God possesses an intellect that goes far beyond human comprehension. Nothing is beyond His knowledge or understanding. The intellect is what we typically equate with the thinking faculties of the mind. We are body and soul. I've said this before. Body and soul. The the mind or the intellect is a part of that soul, the uh, immaterial part of us. We're body, we're soul. People will often make statements about their, their mind or their thought life as if it was its own distinct and separate thing. But that's a part of the inner man, the soul, your thinking. Um, psychology speaks of things like depression. Well, they, they, they have a, a mental disorder. That's the word, mental. Well, we don't have a mental. We have a body. We have a soul. Either your soul, is there's a problem in your soul, or there's a problem in your body. You, you don't have a, a mental as distinct from those things. But when we, when we speak of the intellect, this is what we're talking about. The, the thinking faculties of the mind. Now this, I think, would logically precede the former point. Because God possesses an intellect, He has the faculties to be consciously aware of His existence, or we could say God's awareness of His existence is an act of His infinite intellect. Anthropomorphisms galore. I don't know any other way to say it. I'm speaking in human terms. So then we have these scriptures. The first is Psalm 92.5. Psalm 92.5. Again, the point is that God possesses an intellect or, or is. Intellect is... Thought, we might say. Psalm 92, 5. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Now what do we learn from this passage? Well, simply put, that there is such a thing as God's thoughts. God thinks. He has an intellect. Again, Anthropomorphism, what, what does it mean to say that God has thoughts versus God is pure, uh, eternal uh, conception? God has thoughts, and His thoughts are very deep. Romans 11, in turn there, confirms this in the New Testament. Romans eleven thirty three to 36. You know, Paul has just walked through this, this plan that, of God by which he will gather in all of his elect. And then Paul bursts forth into this praise. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Or who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul is asserting. We could take all of these questions and, and flip them into assertions. These are rhetorical questions. No one has known the mind of the Lord. No one has become His counselor. No one has ever given to God that then has somehow put God in His debt that God has to pay Him back. Why? Because 
everything that is began with God. From Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. But with regard to His intellect or His thinking, it's beyond searching. It's unfathomable. There's no depth. You can't, you can't find it. You, you send out a, a sounding. Imagine a submarine. You know They would send out a sounding. And the idea is that the, I think, the sound wave goes and bounces off of something and comes back. And they can judge by how far it went and how quick it comes back, how, the, how many fathoms it is. You send out a fathom or, or, or this sound wave to try to fathom God's ways and it just goes. There's no returning. God's, God's thought and God's actions, there, there is no end to the contemplation of them. There's no study of them. You begin to think, and, and we know this to be true, and, and men, John Owen, I've been reading him on, on spiritual mindedness. He, he, he comes and addresses this fact that when we even begin to give our minds to begin to contemplate God, the unsearchableness of it is like we just walked into an infinite room and we're told to go stand in the corner. And we don't even know where to begin to go. Our minds just, they're gone. Because He's unfathomable. His thoughts are unfathomable. His ways are indescribable. And the prescription is, so then, pick one particular attribute or truth of God at a time and just settle down on it. You have to, of course, we go to the Scriptures there. But you know that to be true. I'm going I'm to meditate on something about God. All right. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are unfathomable. Out, out goes the sound wave. I got nothing. Now, if we, if we also keep in mind God's immutability and His eternality with regard to the intellect of God... It isn't so much that He is thinking, but that He eternally possesses all thought, even of Himself, in one indivisible act of consciousness. God is not thinking in a a procession of moments, thought after thought after thought after thought, but God is eternal knowledge, consciousness. He He simply knows Now, the next point is to compare man's intellect or man's understanding with that of God. Psalm 94.11. This, this is really encouraging to me. Psalm 94.11, the Lord knows the thoughts of a man that they are a mere breath. So He knows all your thoughts, your deepest contemplations, your, your, your wildest meditations, even most accurate meditations of God. And God sees them. We could add to that all of the thinking of, of the philosophies and philosophers of history all of the greatest minds. We were talking at lunchtime about lasers. That is, I was, my mind was just, I was, that, that men think on a level that I can't even comprehend. And yet God looks at their thoughts and He sees them as if they were a breath. A brief, vain nothing. You figured out how to create a crystal and smooth it out and send something into it so that the light refracts and builds up power so that it comes out the other side and, and a, a laser with such force and power that it will cut through metal. God says, nothing. That is nothing. Where'd you get your power from? Where'd you get your crystals from? It's nothing to Him. All of our, our intellect, it's nothing. A breath, puff, and it's gone. 1 Corinthians 3.20 And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise. 
that they are useless. This is obviously speaking of, of our wise. Humanity collects his, his wise, our, our wise men together. Gather the wise men. God says, the very best of all of our thinking and all of our reasoning men is compared to Him, useless, vain, futile, empty. Now that doesn't mean that we ought not to think or strive or, or, or reason or work with our minds, but the, the comparison is being made. When you get to the end of it, when we have exhausted everything we've got, God says, that's nothing. We, we couldn't even have one single thought if God had not given whatever that is in our gray matter that, that produces that. Isaiah 55 is another text that I think we know perhaps more familiar with. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, or your, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, the point being made is, is that God does have thoughts, He has an intellect. But more specifically, His thoughts are not ours. His, his way of thinking and the thoughts themselves are, are not like ours in, in quantity or quality. Completely different. They don't function on the same wavelength, level, period. His thoughts are holy thoughts. His thinking is holy thinking. A thinking that is completely other than any other thinking creature. I should probably say any thinking creature, not other. He's, he's not a creature at all. Any thinking creature. He, he's, he's, it's not like ours. He doesn't reason like we reason. doesn't walk through processes like we do. It's not, not like us. 1 Corinthians 1.20 And 20 and then... 25. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Then verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The, the, the wording that's used here is supposed to be uh, figurative. When it talks about the wisdom of the world, uh, keep in mind what we've already seen. To God, our thoughts are a breath, a vapor, a vain nothing. Okay? That, we, we understand when, when Paul says the wisdom of the world, we're, we're saying all those, the highest and the loftiness of those vain nothing thoughts that we might have. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world, the very highest of our thoughts. He makes them utter folly. And then the same is true about verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Well, we know God has no weakness. God has no foolishness. So when we say the foolishness of God... Again, it's a figure of speech. The idea is if, if we might try to imagine that... This is anthropomorphic. That any... If we could single out one of God's... A thought, as if God thought like we do. If we could single out a thought of God and we could pick one that was in any way lower than the rest in, in majesty, magnitude, grandeur, glory... Single out one of them. We say, here we have discovered the lowest of God's thoughts. Well, we'll call that the foolishness of God. We know it's, it, it is no such thing. That, that, even that, the very least, we might say, of the thoughts of God, far surpasses anything 
ever conceived in the minds of men. Think of the most in, insignificant, inconsequential creature on planet Earth. Find it. You say, here is this thing. Think of little bugs that you see that you, you wipe them and they just disappear. Wipe them away. Why? Why? That's what we ask. And there we have concluded our wisdom. God created that. God's thoughts are not like ours. His wisdom. That what we would say, that, that's the, the foolishness of God. And yet we can't explain it. All we can do is ask a question. What is it? Why does it exist? Does it have intestines? Does it have a mind? Does it have, how can this tiny thing, and yet God created? All we have is questions. The foolishness, so to speak, of God baffles all of our thinking. And then there's an, an important application here to be made. God's knowledge and understanding are far beyond the comprehension of finite men. And then we have some scriptures that, that answer this question. How then can we understand anything? That's, that's another, another error. If this is true, what can we know? What can we think? God has revealed. God has spoken. The first one is John 1.18 with regard to Christ the Son. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. In and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we can learn of God. It's, it is, we often say this when we talk about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, that, that's, that's near to us. We, we know of fathers, earthly, close, who is in heaven. Far beyond and transcendent. Far above us. Well, this is the idea here. Yes, God is is far beyond our, our thinking and our comprehension and our wisdom and our understanding. His, his thoughts are inconceivable. But that doesn't mean that He's so far distant that we have nothing. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. He is so transcendent that He comes so near to us that He reveals Himself most fully in a way that we can comprehend in the person and work of His Son. So Christ reveals to us the Father. 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 12. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. In other words, through the Holy Spirit, we can have a knowledge of this inconceivable God and even His thoughts. When you read the Bible, you see how God does things, what God says, how God acts and responds. You learn something, a condescension, of course, of the way God thinks, so that you can begin to think on human terms, in that way. What does God think about, you know, fill in the blank, some sin? Well, I read the Scriptures. I know what God thinks about it. He hates it. And He works that in me through His Spirit so that I can begin to hate the things that He hates. We, we learn how God thinks and, and acts and responds. And very often it, we, we come to realize that the ways of God are not really startling. God, is, God is, is His own self. God is God. He does things and people act surprised. He answers prayer and things like that. Whoa, I can't believe it. Why? <laughs> you ever read the Bible? That, that's, sort, that's, his, that's His whole thing. is to baffle our minds, especially with His goodness. The Spirit, who is God, as we've seen, possesses the same divine intellect the Spirit knows Himself as God fully and perfectly. That Spirit dwells within us and makes God known to us through Christ. And then we see specifically through the Scriptures. Turn to Psalm 119, verses 97 through 100.
all of the Word, but specifically the law. When you, when you study the law of God, you learn how God thinks about certain things. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. We see here God's Word makes us wise. God's Word gives us insight. God's Word gives us or increases our understanding. So yes, God's intellect is far beyond our comprehension. It always will be. We won't enter into glory and say, Aha, now I get it. Now, No, we will, we will forever be growing and, and learning of God, but we'll never have the mind of God. It's always going to be beyond us. But that doesn't mean that we have no light or no insight into God's mind and His thoughts. Christ and the Spirit working through the Word reveal to us the mind of God. Another application is given. You can turn to Psalm 131. He references Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. And then Psalm 131 is answering the question, how should we live in light of the infinite knowledge of God? Throw our hands up and say, I can't know anything, I might as well give up and just run my own way. No. Psalm 131. My, the heading in this Bible says, Childlike trust in the Lord. A song of a sense of David. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from his time forth and forevermore. What is the application? We can rest in God. We don't know everything. People with Twitter accounts don't know everything. People with podcasts don't know everything. We don't know everything. Their predictions have failed yet again. Who does know everything? God knows everything. I can rest. I don't have to know everything. I'm not even required to know everything. That's, that's an amazing thought. I actually think that maybe, this is just me personally, this might be a good New Year's 2023 resolution. Not to involve myself in great matters or things too difficult for me. Hey, I don't know. That's, that's my answer. Next. We don't have to. We're not required to know everything. God knows everything. We do not, we will not, we cannot know everything. God does. Therefore, we can hope in Him. Just rest in Him. Childlike trust. Do you think a child, it talks about a weaned child, any type of child. Let's think of a nursing child. Do you think a nursing child can explain how the milk comes from the breast into its mouth? No. It doesn't have to. It whimpers, the mother grabs, feeds. It rests. Now, is it consciously thinking, I'll, I'll lean upon my mother and trust my mother? Probably not. The mother takes that into consideration. The mother nurses that child. And this is what we have in God. He knows everything. He knows our needs. He knows our, our, our whimpers. He's there to meet them, to satisfy, to fulfill, to, to carry us. Always rest. He knows it. We don't. Rest. Then thirdly, God possesses a will. This is the last point proving His personhood. God possesses a will. The Scriptures clearly reveal that God possesses a will, the power to determine His actions or what He will do, and the end or purpose of His creation. He can do what He wills with what He has made. God's choices flow from who He is. His will is an expression of His being and disposition, it is important to understand that the will of God and the will of man are two very different things. God is the only one who is completely free to do whatever He purposes in Himself without limitations or possibility of failure. The most resolute decisions of the most powerful men often come to nothing. You see, we have the ability to will and not carry through. I desire 
but I can't make it happen. There, there is none of that in God. That there is no competition with, with what God wills and then the outside creation or even anything in God that would, would, would withhold Him. What He wills is what He does. That They are one and the same. But He has a will. And back to the concept of personality. God is aware of His existence. God possesses an intellect, the capacity to think and reason within Himself. And He possesses a will which we might think of as the next chronological step in personhood. He's, he has an intellect, therefore he is conscious of his own existence. He, he thinks with thoughts. He, we might say he reasons, although it's not like us. And with a will, he can settle down his desires or determine his own plan of actions. Again, for us, this would require a sequence of moments and reasoning. I'll take this piece of information, and I'll take this piece of information, and I'll weigh them in God. It's simply will. He knows everything all at once. And it simply is. But He, he does possess this capacity. And then we see the, the Scriptures that are given simply show that there is... Well, they teach us about the will of God, but they also show there are no limitations. Proverbs 19.21 is the first one. Many are the plans, or many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And here the term counsel is to be taken synonymous with purpose or will, the plans of God, God's counsel, God's will stands. We have many plans. We have many ideas. We have many purposes. I want to do this. I'd love to do this someday. Maybe I'll get this done one day, this or that. We, they just, we, we are just all throughout the day just a cycle of this stuff. I'd love to do this and this and this and maybe this and this and this and this. Just constantly, many, many, many. God's plan is settled, fixed. It is. It stands. That's the point. God does not waver or debate within Himself. Though we may say He thinks and reasons, we cannot imagine that this is analogous to our thinking and reasoning, which requires us to take time to weigh various options, come to a conclusion, and then try to see if, how that competes with the rest of the world around us. That's not how it is with God. The, the will of the counsel of God is in God from eternity and cannot change. The counsel of the Lord will stand. Isaiah 14, 27 is the next reference. For the Lord of hosts, hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for His stretched out hand... Who can turn it back? Rhetorical questions. The answer is nothing can frustrate or turn back God's plans. Once fixed in God as an eternal reality, there is no alteration in God's purposes or plans. No one can frustrate it in any way. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like, no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God has a will. There is no limitation, no hindrance. Nebuchadnezzar was one who learned this the hard way. We can look at that in Daniel. These are passages of Scripture that are, need to be fixed in our, our minds. I feel like there was a time when Daniel 4, 34 and 35 somehow made its way into like every sermon or every other sermon. These are wonderful Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he, he exalts himself in his pride. Great Babylon that I have built. God humbles him, makes him live like an animal. His hair grows out long. He goes out into the field, eats grass. 
Then he comes back to himself, and this is what he, what he learned. Daniel 4, 34 and 35, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? He does whatever He pleases. In Ephesians 1.11, Paul says, We've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. All things are after the counsel of God's eternally fixed will, or we could say God's eternally fixed will establishes the pattern after which all things will be worked. The will came first. The, the decree of God was first. God's plan, God's purpose. Then He begins to unpack and unfold it, creation and providence. The next point says, Although God's will cannot be limited by any person or force outside of Himself, there are some things that God will not do simply because they contradict His most holy and righteous character. According to the following scriptures, what are some things that God will not do? And how is this a comfort and a blessing? And I'll just read these quickly. Titus 1-2, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. God cannot lie. Everything He says is true. All of His promises are settled. 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. It's not possible for God to deny Himself. Though we cannot attain to any knowledge of God apart from revelation, and even with revelation, we cannot fully comprehend God, He cannot lie, and He cannot deny Himself. Therefore, through the revelation that we have received, we can be absolutely certain that God is exactly as He has revealed Himself. We, when we see Him, we will be astonished at who He is. But we will not say that He's something other than what He said He was. It will just be what He said He was far beyond anything we ever conceived. We will say it was, it was all true and more true than, than we could ever imagine beyond our comprehension. He can't deny Himself. In no revelation and no work of His can God ever do anything that is contrary to His perfect nature and His eternal love for His people. And then James 1.13 teaches that God cannot tempt us with evil or tempt us to sin. So trials and temptations may come and God will use them to test us, to prove our faith, to draw us back into His arms, but He cannot have any intention of leading us into sin or tempting us or having a, a purpose in Himself to cause us to sin. That cannot happen. And so we have comfort from God in these things. His will is fixed and established. None can thwart His will. There is no limit to His will except what He in Himself is not capable of doing because it's contrary to His nature. So then, in conclusion, God is personal. God is aware of His own existence. God possesses an intellect. God possesses a will. Herman Bovink says He can appear and reveal Himself in definite places, at definite times, to definite persons. God knows who He is and reveals Himself perfectly. God thinks thoughts higher than anything expressible in human words. He wills eternally all that has been, is, and will be. I think we might see some of this next week. But listen, God, God is personal. What does that mean? You can talk to God and He hears what you say. You're not talking into the mist, into the fog, into the sky. He's, he's personal. You can talk to Him just like you would talk to a person and you're talking to a person, you can say, I'm talking to this person, I'm not talking to everybody. And that person hears you and looks at you and receives your words as coming from you to them. 
God is personal in that way. You can talk to Him and He hears you. God has spoken His Word and we can hear Him. Open His Word and read it and He can talk to you through His Word personally. You can obey God and He watches you obey Him. You can disobey God and He watches you disobey. He sees it. He has thoughts and plans concerning each of us. He's He's personal. He's not just an, and I guess this is redundant, He's not an impersonal force. He is a personal being. Though He is spirit, and though He is not like us, He is still a real, living, personal God. That should be comforting to all of us. Let's pray and then we'll stand and sing.